that every year on the first Saturday in December, 2,500 of the most brilliant college students in the United States of America take what may be the hardest math test in the world. It is called the Putnam Competition. How tough is it? Well, there are only 12 questions on the entire test, but it takes six hours. And although these are the best and brainiest students in our country, the median score on last year's test was one point out of 120. That's the median score, one point out of 120. There's a tougher test, God's holiness. And there is no way we can possibly pass his test by ourselves. Yet we try, and we try all the time. Just like many people live their whole lives seeking the approval of an earthly father, so many live their whole lives seeking the approval of a heavenly father. Just as many work hard at earning human approval, many work hard at earning God's approval. We are driven to prove ourselves by our performance. The end result is one point out of a hundred. But that's what religion is all about, it seems. Religion is all about achieving perfection by performance. Doing everything right. But it doesn't work. Because religious rules can never produce perfection. Hebrews chapter 7. Religious rules can never, ever produce perfection. Hebrews 7, we'll look at beginning at verse 11 this morning. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it the people received the law... What further need was there for another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be designated according to the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of law also. If the Israelites could have been made perfect through the Levitical priests and the ordained law of God in the Old Testament then why would we need another priest? The fact is that Christ has come as our new high priest, and the fact that he has come as our new high priest proves that perfection could not be achieved through the Old Testament law or through the Levitical priestly system that God had established through Aaron. The word perfect means to be complete or finished, to be a complete person, a finished person. And it's used in the sense of being, being acceptable to God. We are perfect when we have passed God's test and win God's approval. The Old Testament priests were in the business of making people right with God through administering the law and the sacrifices but they never could achieve perfection 
and no one through that system ever achieved perfection. The people never could pass God's test. And therein is the problem with all religion, isn't it? Therefore, God raised up a new high priest. And that's what Hebrews is all about. God raised up a new high priest after the order of Melchizedek and not after the order of Aaron. God transferred the priesthood of Aaron to the priesthood of Christ. The word for changed meant to alter or transfer from one state or condition to another. The Greek word for change is a word from which we get our English word metathesis. Metathesis in language is the substitution of one sound for another. People metathesize when they mix up sounds in words. So when something metathesizes, it is changed by substitution. In the medical world, cells metathesize into new cells. They are transformed, they are changed into new cells. So the Old Testament mosaic system was changed into the Christian system with Christ as our new high priest. We no longer live under the Jewish priesthood. We live under the priesthood of Jesus Christ. God has changed the system. God has transferred the priesthood. Now, in his argument then, Since there is a change in the priesthood, there must also be a change in the role of the law. The two correspond to one another. The Levitical priesthood and the Mosaic law were inseparably connected. So when God changed one, he changed the other. We no longer then live under the law, the Mosaic law as a rule of life. We live under Christ by faith to be acceptable to God. Christ fulfills the law. We accept his work by faith. We are rendered perfect, not by our works, not by our performance, but by faith in Christ and his work for us. It's not about our performance, but about his grace. It's not about keeping the law or religious rituals, or passing God's test of perfection. It is about admitting we cannot keep the law. We are imperfect. We are flawed. And accepting Christ's perfection as our substitute. It doesn't mean, of course, that the law has no value. The law has value to show us what? Our failures. Our sin. But it cannot make us perfect. It cannot make us right with God. We can never achieve perfection by the law. Now that is exactly Paul's argument in the book of Galatians. Paul wrote in Galatians uh, chapter 3, But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor, our taskmaster, if you will, to lead us to Christ, to show us we need Christ, 
by showing us our failures, you see, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So the law was like a math teacher, giving us an impossible test and demanding that we score 100% or we fail. The law is like a critical father, constantly pointing out all our flaws. No matter what we do, we cannot please him. No matter what we accomplish, we never quite measure up to his standards. We always can do better, so we never enjoy approval. We never pass the test. That's the power of the law. But in Christ, we no longer live under the law. We don't have to live that way anymore. So the problem is that we come to Christ by faith, and it is wonderful, it is gracious, we accept God's grace. And what do we do? We put ourselves right back under the law. We put ourselves right back under the system that we were saved from. Right back under the performance, perfection mode of the law all over again. Remember, the book of Hebrews is written to address Jewish Christians, Hebrew Christians, who had come to Christ. They accepted by grace that Christ paid their penalty, that they couldn't be perfect, and they accepted His grace. And they became Christians. And then what did they do? They're going right back to the law. They're going back to the Old Testament system. And he's writing the entire book of Hebrews to say, don't do that. Don't go back under that system. Don't go back to that way of living It's fraught with difficulty. It will make you miserable. You will never find satisfaction, fulfillment, or contentment under the performance, perfection mode of living. Paul addresses that same problem in Galatians once again. He says in chapter 4, But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Now we come down to the end of this section in Hebrews 7, and he says, For on the one hand, verse 18, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. That stuff was all weak and useless. And you're turning back to those elemental things. Hebrews chapter 5, he said, I've got to go back to the elemental things because you haven't left them behind. You're going right back to that stuff all over again. And that's what happens so often to Christians. We go right back to that whole mode of living, even though we came to Christ by faith in His grace. It becomes ingrained in us, doesn't it? Perfectionism becomes ingrained in us. And perfectionists never seem to have that feeling of being satisfied or being content, right? Because it becomes so ingrained in us that we can never feel satisfied. We have a hard time resting in God's grace because we're always trying to perform, always trying to do better, always trying to be perfect. The drive to be perfect is so strong that people turn back to performance-driven Christianity all over again 
And what does Paul say in Galatians 4? It is slavery. That's not too hard a word. You become enslaved. Perfectionists are, are enslaved to their perfectionism. Don't go there, the Bible tells us. You will never find fulfillment in life through performance. You will never be complete. You will never be perfect by following all the rules and regulations you can come up with. Just not going to happen. Because we are imperfect people. That's the starting point. A cloud of doubt hangs over home run King Barry Bonds. On August 7, 2007, Bonds hit home run number 756, the one that broke Hank Aaron's record. Most of the talk about the new record, though, is whether it really should count because Bonds is alleged to have used steroids. Sports buffs say if his name goes in the record book, it should be accompanied by an asterisk. What does an asterisk say? The asterisk means that, that the record is a sort of record. It's, it's not quite there, you know. It's a footnoted record. Mark Echo, the man who bought the ball that Bonds hit to set that record, asked baseball fans in an internet poll what, we, what he should do with the ball. The fans voted for him to brand the baseball with an asterisk and then give it to the Baseball Hall of Fame. Never to be erased, an asterisk. And in the summer of 2008, that's exactly what he did. So the home run ball is in the Hall of Fame with an asterisk. Folks, if our record is all that counts... Every one of us is in God's book of life with an asterisk. Every single one of us. We are all flawed. We are imperfect people. Revelation says our names are written in the book of life, but if it's on your record, it's an asterisk because it's flawed. We are there by God's grace. It is Christ's work that is perfect, not ours. And, and when God looks at his book of life, where your name is, what does he see? He doesn't see your asterisk. He sees Christ's perfection. We enter God's hall of fame in heaven with no asterisks beside our name, not because we earned it. We deserve the asterisk but because he provided that salvation by his grace. Second principle, our royal priest provides salvation. Verse 13, For the one concerning whom these things are spoken, that is Jesus Christ, belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar, that is the altar in the temple. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. So Jesus Christ does not come from the tribe of Levi. He comes from another tribe, the tribe of Judah. Now there are two Greek words in the Bible that can be translated another. 
The first Greek word that is translated another means another of the same kind. The second Greek word that is translated another means another of a different kind. This word is the second one. It means another of a different kind of tribe in this case. Jesus Christ comes from a different kind of tribe and he is a different kind of priest than they were. The New Testament is very clear, of course, that Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah, of the line of David the king. He is from the royal tribe and the royal line, so he is a royal priest. Now, in the Old Testament, kings were not allowed to perform priestly functions. It was absolutely against God's law, His rule. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 26, there's a a story of King Uzziah coming back from a victory. And he goes into the temple and he decides to offer incense to God at the altar in the temple. And the high priest and the other priests come in and they see him performing priestly functions in the temple. And they say to him, King, you are to get out of here. You are not allowed to do this. And he gets enraged at them. And he says he will do it and he refuses to leave the temple. And what does God do? God smites him with leprosy, just like that. And he spends the rest of his days quarantined from the temple of God. Never again to enter. Kings are not allowed under the law to perform the work of priests. They are two separate functions. But the Old Testament says over and over again that in Messiah, the coming king priest, both functions will take place. And Jesus Christ is Messiah. He is the Christos. He is the one who is coming after the order of Melchizedek, who predated and was superior to the Old Testament law and the priests of Aaron. This is important because the king priest is Messiah, the one who brings true salvation to his people. Christ is a different priest, not just another priest. God raised him up from the tribe of Judah, from the royal line. We're talking about his birth here, obviously. He was born a king. He was born supreme. And he was born a king who will save his people from their sins. That's what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 before the birth of Christ. He will call him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. That's also what the angel told to Mary before the birth of Christ, that he will be a king priest of the tribe of Judah in order to save people from their sins. Christmas is all about the birth of a king who has the power to save people from their sins. So Christ is a totally different kind of priest, not another kind of priest. He is a priest who actually can render us perfect before God. Our royal priest provides salvation for sinners. Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, For He, God, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, 
in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, and he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Christ is a different kind of priest because he is a king priest who has the power to actually provide salvation to us. He is born to be supreme, and we no longer have to try so hard to be perfect. He is the firstborn of all the universe. He is over and above all the universe. He is supreme. We no longer have to strive to gain God's approval because in Christ we enjoy His approval. We can rest in His perfection. And every perfectionist needs to learn to rest in His perfection. Dove Soap has released a series of commercials that question the beauty industry's relentless pursuit of the perfect woman. It was part of their campaign for real beauty and the pursuit of a healthy self-esteem for women. In a commercial called Evolution, a woman wearing no makeup walks to a chair and sits down. As the camera focuses on her face, we see a series of time-lapse pictures that show her evolve into a billboard model. First the makeup, then the artist tone her skin to perfection, then a horde of hairstylists surround her, transforming her straight shoulder-length hair into a cascade of wind-blown blonde curls. After dozens of pictures are taken, one shot is chosen, and computer designers begin to manipulate it. They make her neck longer, her eyes bigger, her cheeks thinner. And after recoloring her to perfection, the final perfect woman is posted on a billboard for all the beauty products. And then as the commercial comes to a close, these words silently appear on the screen. No wonder our perception of beauty is distorted. No wonder our perception of beauty is distorted. Folks, our perception of perfection is distorted. This is just one example. We try so hard to remake ourselves into a false vision of perfection. We seek the approval of others in church. We put on our Christian spiritual makeup so we can go to church and people will think we're great. And we're beautiful people. We try even harder to win God's approval, but the whole thing is totally distorted. We can never achieve perfection through covering up, through makeup, through remaking ourselves. We are who God made us. We are whom the people God loves, as we are. We can never achieve perfection through performance. We can only accept by faith the perfection Christ provides and enjoy the beauty we have in Him. Folks, God makes you beautiful. God makes you beautiful in Him with the beauty that lasts eternally. God makes us worthy of Him. We need to find our significance, our value, our beauty in what God does to us and in Christ and how He is remaking us in His image and not in what the world tells us is beautiful and perfect and worthy. Third principle is endless life promises eternal assurance. Verse 15. 
And this is clearer still. If another priest arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become such, not on the basis of a law of physical requirement, but according to the power of an indestructible life, for it is witnessed of him, thou art a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, one thing is very clear from all of this, the author of Hebrews says, Christ is not a priest because he met some physical requirements. He is a priest on the basis of an indestructible life. The Old Testament priests were priests on the basis of physical requirements. Of course, they had to be descendants of Levi. They had to be descendants of Aaron. But there were a whole host of other physical requirements. They couldn't have blemishes. They had to be physically perfect specimens. They couldn't have disease. They couldn't be flawed in order to be priests of the Most High God in the temple. And the author of Hebrews says, look, Christ isn't that kind of priest at all. He isn't a priest on the basis of any physical requirements. The world is caught up with how you look and how you are and all of those physical requirements. Even the Old Testament priestly system was built on that. Because you couldn't be flawed. But Christ is not that kind of priest. He is a priest because of an indestructible life. Who he is, and the fact that he lives forever. The Levitical priests all died. They were not indestructible. Their lives were dissolved by death, and their priesthood ended with that death. The word that is used here for indestructible means undissolvable, indissoluble. It cannot, the life cannot be dissolved. It is endless. It can never end. Christ's priesthood was not dissolved by death because his life did not end in death. He rose from the dead to live forever. So his priesthood can be an eternal priesthood and we can have assurance of eternal life in him. The author of Hebrews has used the word rise up three times in the passage. The word is important because, of course, it points ultimately to the resurrection from the dead. Christ died, but he rose again from the dead. And Peter used the very same Greek word that is used here in his first sermon in Acts. When he said, David, the Old Testament king, looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Same Greek word. The resurrection. That is what proves that Christ lived an indestructible life. It wasn't about being unblemished physically. It wasn't about being perfect in all of the world's categories of perfection. It was about an indestructible life, a life that was endless that never, ever ended. He rose again from the dead. Never ended. So, what does that tell us? Well, we no longer have to fear death either. He has conquered death so that we too can live forever. That reality changes our whole outlook on life. We can find comfort in his assurance of eternal life for us. We live from here to eternity. You are living forever 
right now. For God so loved the world, what? That he gave us his only beloved son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but has eternal life. Present tense, right now. You live forever. You will never die a spiritual death. You'll die a physical death, but never ever a spiritual death. You will live forever right now. You are living forever. We are forever beings. (laughs) You're looking at people who live forever this morning. Pastor and author Bob Russell tells the story of Anthony Berger, who died at age 44. Many feel that he was the finest gospel pianist that ever lived. He spent 10 years playing for the Gaither Vocal Band. And in 2006, he accompanied the Gaithers on a Christian cruise in the Caribbean. 1,500 people were on that cruise. They vacationed during the day, and they'd come to a gospel concert in the ship's theater at night. The fourth night out on the cruise, Anthony Berger had just played a piano solo. About five minutes later, during the concert, he collapsed of a massive heart attack. He died instantly at his piano on the stage. Christian author and speaker Becky Pippert was a guest teacher on that cruise, and she was to address the people the next morning in her Bible study. Becky said that before she got up to teach, a woman came to her and said, Becky, I want to tell you what happened to me last night, just before Anthony Berger died. And Becky told Bob Russell, who was her pastor, who's relayed this in a book. Bob, she said, you know, sometimes you have people uh, come up to you and they want to give their testimony or they want to be on the stage, they want the spotlight, but this is not one of those ego-driven people. She's very humble and unassuming. She said... In the concert last night, after Anthony Berger played his solo, the spotlight went to the other side of the stage, but for some reason I kept my eyes on Anthony Berger. I felt like God was impressing these words in me. I'm going to show you something from my realm that will be an encouragement to people. She said, I was troubled. And suddenly, she said, I saw standing behind Anthony Berger an angel. She said he appeared to be seven feet tall, dressed in white and gold, and he just stood there for about 30 seconds. He put his hand on Anthony's shoulder, and Anthony looked up and then slumped down and died. When just minutes before he had played the song, We Shall Behold Him. What a way to go! What a way to go! We shall behold him! Now, I have never seen anything like that. Maybe you haven't either. Maybe you even doubt it this morning. That's okay. It's not a test of your faith. But I have heard people tell me about events like that. And I can tell you this. On the basis of God's word, we don't have to fear death. Because in Christ we have eternal life. And we go from this life to the next life in a moment. Just like that. And he's with us all the way through. That's our eternal assurance in Jesus Christ. J. Oswald Sanders wrote, Peace is not the absence of trouble, but the presence of God. In life or in death, Christ is with us as our perfect high priest. Look at verse 18. For on the one hand, 
There's a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, this is where we're going, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the argument comes to a conclusion now in these verses. God sets aside the old law to bring us a better hope. The old way was all about trying to be perfect through performance. But the law was weak and useless for achieving perfection, as everyone eventually finds out who tries to be perfect. We can never achieve perfection, and the point is we're missing the whole point. Which is, it isn't about performance, it isn't about perfection, it's about drawing near to God. You see the difference? It's about a relationship with God. God's new hope is not about our achieving perfection, but about drawing near to God through Jesus Christ. And he's going to continue that in the rest of this chapter. God isn't looking for perfect people. Maybe you grew up with a conditional love where you had to perform to be approved and you carry that over into your spiritual life. You were working so hard to earn God's approval, to be the perfect Christian. Give it up. God isn't looking for perfect people. Because there isn't any one of us that is. And he is looking for us. He's looking for people who will draw near to him through faith in Christ and enjoy an intimate relationship with God despite our failures and our flaws. It is all about walking with God, not working for God. This is the new and the living way we find in the book of Hebrews. Enjoy that walk with God. He wants you. He doesn't want your perfection or your performance. With the new with the 2010 Winter Olympics taking place in Vancouver, Canada, chances are good that many of the athletes performing in those Olympics will be Christians. There have been many Christians who performed in the Olympics over the years. In an anthology entitled Finding God at Harvard, American figure skater and Harvard graduate Paul Wiley writes of his experience during a very trying moment in the 1988 Calgary Winter Olympics. He had set up for the first jump in his final program in figure skating. And as he went into the jump, he realized it was off. And as he came down, he lost his balance. And he reached out with his hand and he just touched the ice and then he felt his skates go and he, he fell. As he leaped up uh, and tried to continue on, he said all kinds of thoughts were flashing through his head. His chance was over, just like that. All those years of training. I mean, you can't erase that image from the judge's mind. What's more, millions and millions of people were watching on live television. You can't go back and rewind it and erase it. He'd fallen, it was over. He had his whole program, four minutes yet to go. So he had a choice he could make. He said he could dwell on the fact that he fell, and so probably fall again and start messing up, or he could put it behind him and move on. And he said at that moment, 
as he's skating now in the Olympics, a scripture verse flashed into his mind. It's amazing how fast your mind can work, isn't it? And the scripture verse was this, The righteous shall fall, but they shall not be utterly cast down. What a great verse. The righteous shall fall, I just did. (laughs) But they shall not be utterly cast down. And he said these words in his book, I suddenly grasp God's perspective. He will use our successes and our failures to teach us about ourselves and to show the world his glory. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Romans 8.28 I move on, he writes, accepting a new role. I admit imperfection and decide to skate heartily as unto the Lord for God's glory rather than my own results. What a great theology. Paul Wiley did go on to finish 10th just to finish the story. I get these questions after the service. He didn't finish the story, you know. I'm sorry, I don't know what happened to the lady with the mattress, you know. Um, I never did hear the end of that story. Somebody did look it up on the internet and tried to find the end of the story, so I don't know where millions of dollars went. But Paul Riley did finish 10th, and he won the silver medal in the 1992 Olympics in France. But that's irrelevant to my point, see? (laughs) Other than that he continued. I love that final line. I admit imperfection and decide to skate heartily as unto the Lord for God's glory rather than my own results. That's the new and living way that Christ came to give to you and me. Father, help us to admit our flaws and our imperfections, to realize that we are not perfect. We never will be perfect in ourselves. To realize that even in the struggles of this life, even in our failures as well as our successes, you are seeking to glorify yourself and that we can live for you and your glory rather than for our successes and our results. In Jesus' name, amen.